And I don't even give out grades, since she said that anyway, right? I know. Right? I know. <laughs> That's why. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Oh, really? He did quizzes? Yeah. I've done quizzes before, but then it, it cuts into my talking time, right? I just want to talk. Well, we'll go ahead and get started. I think it's that time, so it's good to see everybody here tonight. Uh, I appreciate everybody coming out on a, on a beautiful night and being willing to study God's Word together. If you have the new handout, the new handout starts on page 106. And if I figured correctly, I think we just have about two sentences left on the last handout. So we came pretty close to the end of the page. We're starting with chapter 27 at the bottom of page 105. Does that sound right to everybody else? All right. Well, let's... Uh, Let's open with a word of prayer then, and we'll dive in. Father, we're thankful tonight to, to be here. Uh, we're grateful that your Son came into this world uh, to save us from our sins. Uh, we're thankful that tonight we have this opportunity to think especially about His work, how He was willing to fulfill this plan, this, this mission that you sent Him on as a servant. And because of that, he will inherit the nations. He will have a great people, an offspring, who someday will praise him. And uh, we're thankful to be included. Uh, we pray that even this class, as we, as we think about the gospel, uh, would be a tool that we could use to share the gospel better with others. And uh, we ask for your blessing in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so when we left off, we... We're talking about Jesus' trials and how we've got four different gospel writers. Um, all of them together tell, them, tell us about different phases of the trials that Jesus went through that evening, that Thursday evening into Friday morning. No one of the four gospel writers tells us everything. They're just filling in different details as eyewitnesses. Uh, Matthew, when we start chapter 27, he's focusing on his trial in front of Pilate. So remember, the Jewish leaders have already decided that they want to silence him, that they want to kill him. Uh, they were just looking for a pretext. So the trial that he has in front of Caiaphas and Caiaphas' father-in-law, it's really just a sham. They've already decided that he's going to die. But it seems from what we know... Um, John chapter 18, verse 31, uh, tells us that they don't actually have the power to officially sentence someone to death. Uh, this later doesn't seem to stop them from just grabbing Stephen and just executing him on the spot, but that seems to be kind of an exception. If they really want to go about it the right way, they're going to have to get the Roman government to approve. All right? So turning the page... They're going to have to deliver him over to, to Pilate. Pilate is actually the, the Roman prefect. That would be his official title. In our Bible, he's called the governor, which is just kind of a more general term. So we know about Pilate not only from the Bible, but also from other historical sources. Sometimes it's, it's helpful to stop and remember that the Bible itself is a historical source. And it's actually the only true historical source. So we don't actually need other sources to tell us that Pilate really existed, but we do. We do have other places where he's mentioned that you could bring in as supporting evidence if someone was actually questioning the Bible. So, for example, on the left there, this is an inscription that we found in Caesarea. So he's the, he's the governor. Remember, after Herod the Great died, uh, after Herod's son Archelaus uh, proved to be kind of uh, a troublemaker for Rome. They decided that they were going to directly rule the province instead of letting one of the Herodians rule. So now Pilate is the fifth of those guys who's ruled. They normally would have been in Caesarea on the coast. That's where his capital would have been. 
It was a very pagan, very Gentile city, had a temple to, to uh, Caesar Augustus when you sailed into the harbor. So it would have been very different from other cities in Judea. Uh, but he made sure to show up in town for the feasts with some guards with him in order to keep the peace. Because remember, Passover is basically like their 4th of July. It's their time to celebrate their independence from Egypt. And it was always a time for rebel rousers to kind of foment revolution. And so Pilate is there and he would temporarily set up camp at Herod's former palace. And uh, that would become his praetorium while he was there. We know from other places in both the scripture and other historical records that Pilate does seem to have been willing quickly, as I say there at the end of that paragraph, to spill Jewish blood. So one example is in Luke 13.1. People come to Jesus and they tell him, it says, quote, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. That's the only detail we know, but evidently some Galileans had been in Jerusalem for offering sacrifices, and somewhere in the process they did something to provoke Pilate, and some of them died. And this fits what we know of other places. Um, In Josephus, he tells of a story once where he offended, that's Pilate, uh, the Jewish people by bringing Roman standards that depicted the emperor into Jerusalem. So they considered it idolatry to bring images of the emperor. And the emperor especially, I think, bothered them because by this time he was starting, or other people were starting to claim it for him that he was a god. So they started referring to Augustus as God, to Tiberius as the son of God. That would have been deeply offensive to Jewish sensibilities. So he gets in trouble with Rome for doing this. On another occasion, he decided to take money from the temple treasury. So from that Corbin money that we talked about earlier, he decided he would take some to build some aqueducts. And that caused some Jewish people to riot or protest. And he sent in troops. And on his command, after they'd mixed into the crowd, uh, they rose up and and killed many of them. Uh, He finally causes a major incident by bringing shields honoring the emperor into Jerusalem. So he seems to have been deeply trying to win Tiberius' approval. So he has these shields made that have Tiberius' image on them. He brings them into Jerusalem. But again, probably the issue was that they would have had an inscription saying that he was the Son of God. And so again, the Jewish leaders revolt. um, And this time they actually asked for help. They actually got the, the Herodians. So Herod Antipas, who also figures into the story, He's among the people who actually go to, to uh, uh, Tiberius and protest on behalf of the Jewish people. And Tiberius, it backfires on, on, on Pilate. He's actually furious with him, tells him he's got to get those shields out of Jerusalem, take them back to the temple in Caesarea. So all of this in the background, Pilate is probably caught in the middle. He, he seems to have been a violent person who didn't really care about the Jewish people, was quick to kill them. On the other hand, he's already made Antipas mad, He's already had problems with Galileans. He's on shaky terms with Tiberius the emperor, and he's probably weighing both sides of that when Jesus shows up in front of him. But then the story, before the story continues with Pilate, Matthew switches gears quickly. So just after what's in our Bibles, a couple verses. In verses 3 through 10, he describes Judas actually feeling remorseful and going out and killing himself. And I, and I think correctly, most people see here another parallel. So remember we saw a parallel last time when we left off between Peter and Jesus. So while Jesus was standing in front of Caiaphas and he was boldly uh, confessing that he truly was the Messiah, he truly was the Son of God, meanwhile as the scene shifted outside, Peter not showing the same kind of courage, was actually denying his Lord. But I think Peter and Judas are also parallel. So both Peter and Judas uh, let down their master that night. They both make a serious mistake. Uh, They both feel remorse, but only Peter shows genuine repentance. So there's a lesson there for us as Christians. Uh, We as Christians are not perfect people. We will be repenters our entire life until Jesus comes back for us. But the key is that when we have guilt over sin, we, we do repent. We, we confess it and we turn. Judas has genuine guilt over sin, and I think he has genuine remorse over what he's done. 
but he doesn't repent. He just makes matters worse by going out and killing himself. And there's details here in the story that only Matthew tells us. And one of the details is that you know Judas has thrown this money, these 30 coins of silver, back into the temple. And point two there, the chief priests used that money to go out and buy a burial place for foreigners. So this is the passage in Matthew 27, 7 through 10. So remember, this is a, this is a detail that only Matthew tells in his story. So it fits into his story in a, new, a unique way. He says, So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. That is why it has been called the field of blood to this day. Remember way back last September when we started this class, we looked at this verse as evidence that Matthew wasn't written after the destruction of Jerusalem. He's still writing when the city is still operating and this field is a well-known place that everyone is familiar with. He says, Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took the 30 pieces of silver, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. All right? But point three at the bottom of page, Matthew's quote there, it raises two questions. So if we're thinking deeply about why he put it here and why he says Jeremiah wrote these words, it raises two big questions. The first of all is that this doesn't actually seem to be any kind of quote from Jeremiah. It actually seems to be closer to something that Zechariah said. And second of all, even if it is something that Zechariah said, what's the connection between Jesus, Judas's betrayal and Zechariah to begin with? So we'll try to We'll try to tackle both of those quickly because it seems to be something important that Matthew wants us to know. So the first thing here is if we put what he says here in Matthew 27, 9 through 10, side by side with what Zechariah wrote, it's not actually a quotation. It's not a word-for-word -word quotation of what the prophecy said, but it's kind of a paraphrase. He's basically just telling you, hey, what happened here with Judas and this money and the buying of the field, it fits into the prophecy of Zechariah. It fulfills the, the prophecy of Zechariah. But he's not word for word quoting a specific passage. But I think you can see the wording is close enough that we know which passage he's thinking about. So in this passage, Zechariah is talking, the prophet, and he says, I told them, if you think it best, give me my pay, but if not, keep it. So they paid me 30 pieces of silver, and the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the handsome price at which they valued me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver, and I threw them to the potter at the house of the Lord. Now this is one of those kind of obscure Old Testament prophecies that we might not be that familiar with. So we'll go just quickly in point four, and we'll just talk about what's happening. So if you back up a little bit in the story to verses seven and eight, this is in Zechariah, we find out that Zechariah is playing the role of a shepherd. So this is one of those sign acts where the prophets act out some kind of illustration in order to teach the people. So the prophet Zechariah has actually said, hey, you know, even though you're not a shepherd, get dressed up as a shepherd and act like a shepherd for a while. So that's what he does. He temporarily plays the role of a shepherd, but pretty soon he gets tired from the task, specifically because of the way the people are treating him, and he decides to quit. And then in verses 9 through 11, the prophecy describes God's decision to temporarily terminate Israel's role as a protected kingdom of priests and to allow a Gentile power to destroy her. And the way it says that, it says, let the dying die and the perishing perish. So Israel has always been God's cherished, protected nation. Going all the way back to Exodus, he made a covenant that he would protect them from outside enemies. It was such a great promise that he said, if you're faithful to the law, you won't even have to have a standing army. You won't even have to worry about national defense. I will always do this for you. But now he's saying, I'm going to remove that favor from you. I'm going to remove that agreement I had with you. I'm actually going to leave you vulnerable to Gentile nations who are going to be able to come in and trample you. And I think then the prophecy goes on to actually predict 
the judgment that comes with the Romans in, in AD 70. But then the, sh the scene shifts back to Zechariah and this shepherding. So he's been giving this message to the people all the while acting like a shepherd, and they've not appreciated him. So once again, like so many of the prophets, they didn't want to listen to his message, especially to his calls to repentance. So he says he gets frustrated there by how the people have treated him. So he tells them he does not even care if he receives wages. So that's what he says. He says, if you think it best, give me my pay, but if not, keep it. Have you ever been so frustrated with a job that you just felt like, I don't even care if I get the next paycheck, right? <laughs> I'm just out of here. I'm just leaving. If they pay me good, if they don't pay me, that's okay too, because I'm just so tired of the situation. That's the kind of frustration that Zechariah is feeling. Well, they decide to pay him, but they give him 30 pieces of silver. Remember I said we'd come back to this idea because Matthew already introduced it back in chapter 26 when Judas went to agree to this betrayal and they told him that they would pay him money, Matthew was very specific. He was going to get 30 pieces of silver. He wanted you to connect it with this story. Probably two stories in the Old Testament. Remember, one is that this is the price that you would pay if your animal accidentally killed somebody's slave. So it's the price of a dead slave. But it's also the mocking price that this shepherd, this prophet, got in the Old Testament. And remember, when they valued the prophet who was acting as a shepherd, look what God says. They've actually placed a value on me. Okay, So this is just one of many clues in the text that when Zechariah acts out this shepherd role, he's actually acting out the role that someday will be filled by the good shepherd. Right? That someday there would be a good shepherd who would come to the people of Israel, he would come with open arms, willing to gather them in and protect them and take care of them, and instead they would reject him. To them, he'd only be worth 30 pieces of silver. And then God says, I want you now to play the role of a bad shepherd. And so he puts on shepherd garb again, and he acts out a different role. And it looks like in that section there, he's actually acting out the role of Antichrist. How there'll be someone like the shepherd who will show up and he'll say he's there to protect the sheep, but he's actually the type of shepherd who will mistreat the sheep and he'll eat the sheep. And I think that's behind Jesus' words in the book of John, that if somebody else comes in his name, you will receive him, even though they haven't rejected him. So it's in light of all of that. At the very end there I say in italics, therefore Judas's betrayal is part of the rejection of Jesus by his own people, which directly fulfills Zechariah's prophetic sign act. So Zechariah, 400, almost 500 years before Jesus, over 500 years before Jesus, acted out this parable to teach the people that someday this good shepherd was going to come and be rejected. And when Judas betrays him for 30 pieces of silver, even though he probably didn't realize it, he was actually doing exactly what God had predicted so many years before. All right, well, so far, so good. I think that's why Zechariah, but then we still have to answer the question there in blue. If this is from Zechariah, why does he say it fulfills the words of Jeremiah? Do you see how that's, that's kind of a puzzle? So I say there in point five, many have recognized that the connection between Zechariah 11 and Jeremiah is likely found in Jeremiah 18 and 19. We know this because it's the only other Old Testament passage that refers to the potter. Well, you think, well, that's, that's kind of tenuous, right? So it refers to the potter, but that's just one word. Is that the only connection? Well, no, there's actually another connection because both passages refer to innocent blood. So look what Judas says, and if you have your Bibles there, in Matthew 27, uh, when we look down at verse 4, he says to the chief priests and the elders, I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. And then as we're going to go through the rest of the passage, you know, especially when he's in front of Pilate, even Pilate, who is pretty quick to kill people if it was politically expedient, he also believes that Jesus is innocent, right? Jesus truly is innocent blood. And innocent blood is one of the sins that Jeremiah 18 and 19 uh, accused the people of actually committing. You've been guilty of innocent blood, right up there with idolatry and human sacrifice and all kinds of other horrible things. If we look at the passage, when we get to chapter 19, 
uh, Jeremiah, again, he's acting things out. He'd been to the potter. He'd watched the potter make clay. He'd seen the potter make something and then decide he didn't like it, and he'd thrown it away. I mean, you know, most of us have seen this at you know, Greenfield Village. Sometimes the potter will do something, and we think, well, it's looking pretty good, and then all of a sudden he or she will do something they don't quite like, and they just go, you know, and they can just smash it and start right over with it because they're the potter, right? They're in control of the situation. So it's a picture of God's sovereignty. You remember in Romans, Paul uses the potter the exact same way. Uh, he, he's thinking of this passage. The, the potter was a picture of God's ability to sovereignly control the nations and also judge them. Well, then in chapter 19, God says to Jeremiah, I want you to go back, and this time I want you to buy a pot. So don't just watch the potter, but actually buy a pot while you're there. He says, go buy a clay jar from a potter, take along some of the elders of the people and of the priests, and go out to the valley of Ben-Hinnom near the entrance of the pot's herd gate, a pot-sherd gate. There proclaim the words I tell you and say, listen, and I'm skipping ahead a little bit, I'm going to bring a disaster on this place that will make the ears of everyone who hears of it tingle. And then he's going to go on and list all the sins that are responsible for this judgment. And he's going to say, they have filled this place with the blood of the innocent. So I think what's going on here is that Matthew wants you to remember Zechariah's prophecy. He wants you to realize that Jesus is the good shepherd who's being rejected. But while you're thinking about Zechariah's prophecy, he wants you to see it through the lens of Jeremiah. He wants you to read Zechariah through the lens of the prophet who wrote before him because Jeremiah actually set up the situation that Zechariah is giving more details about it. And this potter, I think, would have been a picture to them of coming judgment. Let me just read a little bit of that quote at the bottom of page 107 because I think this captures it well. Um, this is from a book by Abner Chow. He says, As the grim reaper is a symbol of death, so the potter is an emblem of judgment and exile. By alluding to the potter, Zechariah's prophecy reminds the people their rejection of the shepherd will lead them further into exile. So remember, they, they know they're in exile. They know they have a problem. They're waiting for someone to rescue them and restore them. But because they've pushed away Jesus and rejected him, they're actually going to be pushed away. Even the, the privileges that they do have, their temple and their, their measure of independence is going to be destroyed. And the people of Israel will be scattered throughout all of the nations. And even today, Jewish people will refer to themselves, as some of them, as being in exile. They're still waiting for the restoration promised in the Old Testament. And I think all of that is wrapped up in this little reference to, to the potter. All right, let me stop there for a second, see if you have any questions about that, those first 10 verses. And as always, that gives me a chance to drink some coffee. All right, so now we've got to get back to Pilate. You see how Matthew shifts scenes here? It's almost like a movie, right, where the, the camera is showing you one thing, and then all of a sudden you shift to another scene, and now we're going back to Pilate, right? So uh, we'll pick up there letter L, verse 11. During his trial before Pilate, Jesus does not say anything in his defense. You can see that there in verses 13 through 14. And this amazes the governor. Uh, the governor acts, this prefect, in the place of the emperor. He can pretty much do anything he wants. Uh, the only thing that could get him trouble is if word gets back to the true emperor and he's displeased, but he has complete control over who lives and dies. I mean, just, there's no jury, there's no Supreme Court to appeal to. You don't show up with defense lawyers, so if you're there on trial for your life, the typical man would have just probably nonstop talked. He would have begged. He would have argued. He would have got down on his hands and knees. You would have heard a lot from him. He would have pleaded, right? We can imagine what that would have looked like. And Pilate's seen many, many people like that in front of him. And now he sees an ordinary-looking man, nothing special about his appearance, remember from Isaiah, but he stands there calmly and says nothing. 
right? He says nothing, which is again what Isaiah said he would be like. So on the top there is Matthew's words from verses 12 through 14. On the bottom is Isaiah 53, 7. Remember, this is the people of Israel looking backwards at what they now know about Jesus. And they say, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. So again, I'm not a farmer. I don't know that much about sheep. But I'm told that this is actually true, like, and we should know that because the Bible says it. But if you take sheep to get shorn or even to get slaughtered, they don't say anything. They go very quietly, and the issue for them is they don't know what's happening, right? They have no idea what they're getting into. But that's not true of our Lord, right? Our Lord, three times in Matthew's Gospel, has predicted exactly what was going to happen to them. Somehow, and it's a mystery to us, as he's reading Scripture growing up, or through some kind of revelation for, from his Father, he's realized that he is this suffering servant that he's the one who's going to carry out this mission, and he's completely willing to do it. He's completely willing to submit his human will to the will of the Father and fulfill this mission. So he goes in knowing exactly what was in store. And Pilate, again, verse 18, he knows he's innocent. Matthew even adds this kind of interesting detail that his wife comes to him and says she suffered greatly in a dream about Jesus. That's, a, that's interesting. I don't know what all is going on there because that's all the Bible tells us. That even his wife shows up and says, you need to be careful of this man because I just had a dream. Remember, this is early in the morning and uh, I've suffered greatly at his hands. So then Pilate, he tries to think of a way that he can get Jesus released. Remember what's going on maybe politically in the background. He has competing interests and he wants to come out clean on the other end. So he's thinking about himself. They seem to have had, it says in verse 15, a, a uh, tradition of releasing someone in order to celebrate the Passover festivities. So I say there in footnote 59, if you remember the Passover celebrates their release from Egypt. They had been slaves in Egypt and then they got released. So that would make sense. One way you could celebrate that would be if one prisoner got to go free every year to commemorate. But then... If that's the background, I think maybe Matthew is using a little bit of irony here, right? Because the one who is being offered for release can only truly release the people of Israel if he's not released. You see the irony there? If he's not released, and if he actually goes to his death, that's the only way that he can, as it said in Matthew chapter 1, save his people from their sins. The only way they can be saved from their sins and brought back to a good land where they can be restored as God's people is if he, he dies for them. All right? So Pilate uses this name Barabbas, maybe even Jesus Barabbas. There's a, there's a textual issue there, and you can see that in our English translations. Either way, though, he's a, he's a notorious prisoner who's committed murder during an uprising. So this looks like he actually was one of these revolutionaries. He actually had tried to start some kind of revolt. People had been killed in the process. He'd been arrested. He was getting crucified for sure. And everyone there would have recognized that he deserved it. And so you can see what Pilate's doing, probably putting forth someone that he thinks would be uh, a likely candidate to receive punishment. Someone, on the other hand, that he probably looks at as pitiful and non-powerful, but innocent and who he's willing to release. But the people, we know the story, they asked for Jesus' crucifixion, which brings us to the, the next big section there, verses 27 through 56. So Carson, in his commentary, he, he reminds us that the crowd is the one that suggests crucifixion, and they probably had other options. Right There, there probably was, theoretically, other ways that Jesus could have been killed. But God chose this specific way because this specific way of being hung and exposed on a pole would have reminded them from Deuteronomy chapter 21 that the person was dying as uh, the result of covenant curses. So originally, the words of Matthew 
21-23 uh, probably referred to someone who had been stoned or executed another way, because they normally would have stoned people under the Mosaic Law, but then their body was supposed to be put up on a pole or a small tree as a warning to the people that this is what happens to a covenant breaker. But also, they are still, even that body uh, reflects God's image, and they weren't supposed to just treat them like the pagans treated bodies. The body wasn't supposed to stay there after dark, that they were supposed to bring it down and, and bury it. Otherwise, God said that would defile the land. So that, that set them apart from their pagan neighbors who would have just left bodies for days, weeks. I mean, you get the idea, right? It's horrible. So this is what it says. Be sure to bury it that same day because anyone who is hung on a pole is under God's curse. And remember, the Apostle Paul picks this up in the book of Galatians, right? That Jesus Christ became a curse for us. We, we deserve the curse of the law, right? But we won't receive the curse of the law because Jesus Christ became a curse for us. So as he hung there on that little pole, you know, not nearly as romantic as we might make it, uh, just probably a, a short little tree, a short little pole, something that they would have brought the crossbeam to, along a public way where lots of people would have seen him, they would have seen him and said, well, he really did something wrong here. And if they were thinking in an Old Testament fashion, they might have even thought, well, this is a covenant breaker. And if they'd heard what the Pharisees were saying about him, they would have said he was a deceiver, he was an imposter. And Paul is too young at this point. You know, Paul comes along later, he likely wasn't there. But as a Pharisee, he would have thought the same thing growing up about Jesus. But in Galatians, he actually realizes, no, he actually came, became a curse for us. And if he went back and read Isaiah 53, that's what Isaiah 53 always said about this servant. That the people there say, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. Well, they were half right, weren't they? He was punished by God. He was stricken. He was dying as a covenant breaker. But it wasn't for his covenant violations, right? It was for his people. It was for his people's sin. And so that's what they say. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed, right? That, that's the gospel, friends, right? That's the gospel that our Lord, our King, the Good Shepherd, died as a covenant breaker, but not for his own sins, but for us. So Matthew, again, he keeps mixing in little references, I think, to the Old Testament that he expects his readers to, to pick up on as they read the Old Testament. One of the ones that's unique to him, point two, is the soldiers are trying to mock Jesus. They offer him wine that's too bitter to drink. So they're probably not well-intentioned at this point. Remember how they actually treated him earlier when he was still in the praetorium? So when they give him a drink, it's, it's mocking because as soon as he tastes it, he realizes it's, not, it's unpleasant. All right? So the way Mark tells it, it's mixed with myrrh. You know, so the perfume isn't meant to be drunk. So it would have had a horrible flavor to it. But Matthew tells the same story, but he uses the word gall, that this wine is mixed with gall. And he's picking this up from one of the Psalms. So Jesus refuses to drink it after he's tasted it. And this is what his ancestor David said about the way he was mistreated by the people. He says, instead they gave me gall for my food and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. So I think this is just one of several places in the New Testament where the things that David said about himself they apply equally or even sometimes even more appropriately to his great son, Jesus, right? And of course, you know, we, just think about all the different things we've already talked about tonight. All the different ways that these prophecies have fit together over hundreds of years. The only way that makes any kind of sense is that there's a Lord over history, right? That there's one person, one mind who had this all scripted out from the very beginning who knew exactly how all of these details fit together 
And I think he actually delights in seeing us delight in it. He actually appreciates and delights in seeing us making these connections and realizing who he is and what he's done. Uh, because that's, that's the best kind of world to live in, isn't it? The best kind of world to live in is not one of random chance, but it's one where there's a good king that's over all things, and he's bringing everything to a very good end. So we already talked a little bit about some irony that is maybe present in the crucifixion narrative. I've mentioned uh, Don Carson's name uh, several times, D.A. Carson, an excellent New Testament scholar who's written on Matthew. I'll give him credit one more time there in the footnote 61. He has a little book that was originally a series of sermons called Scandalous. These are some sermons that I've listened to multiple times. He he points out the, the various ironies of the cross, right? For example, right, uh, they actually tell Jesus, you know, you need to come down from the cross. You saved others, well, save yourself by coming down from the cross. Well, that's actually ironic, right? Because if he is going to save others, he can't come down from the cross. It's by staying on the cross that he actually saves sinners. Uh, when they put that little placard above his head, calling him the king of the Jews, Pilate is making fun of him. I think this is especially obvious in John's gospel. Remember how I talked about how John is interlocking? John, as an old man, writes many years later, and he fills in details for us. And I think one of the things that John really emphasizes is that Pilate just keeps mocking Jesus, and he thinks of him as pathetic. You know, he brings him out as, you know, here's your king, here's this man. He, he thinks of him as a nobody, and then he finally puts him on that little pole with that placard over his head, you know, Jewish people, here's your king, right? And he means it as a joke, but it's actually true, right? It's actually true. He truly is our king. So it's another one of the, the ironies of the cross, and I'll let you read the rest of them there in, the, in the, the footnotes. But one of them is this cry. So they cry out to him in the middle of that fourth paragraph, if you are the son of God, and sorry, my, my Greek text got accidentally in there. I didn't mean to do that, but that's what it's saying. If you are the Son of God, uh, that's not only insulting and ironic, but it's probably supposed to remind us of Satan's words all the way back in chapter 4. We've been going real slow through the Gospel of Matthew. Probably sometimes you thought it was too slow through the Gospel of Matthew. But if we've been reading quickly through Matthew, I think we'd remember this. The back in chapter 4, remember that's what Satan said. If you are the Son of God, do these things. Of course, we believe that he truly is the Son of God. We saw three places in Matthew's Gospel where there were people who gave testimony and said he was the Son of God, including the Father himself from heaven. And now, finally, at the climax, we have the centurion, the man who's there assigned to this detail to oversee the execution. He's seen many men die, right? It's very common for him but he's never seen anyone die like this, right? And so he says, truly this man is the Son of God. That's just one of many dramatic things that then happen when Jesus, when Jesus dies. The first one is actually leading up to his death. So four miraculous signs, point six. The first one is in verse 45. If you notice there, it says that all of the land, so I, I think that's all of the land of Israel, it becomes dark. So I don't think this is just a localized darkness around the cross. It looks like God is showing his displeasure with the whole land of Israel, right? Why else make the point that it's all of the land, right? And we know that this is supernatural, right? This isn't an eclipse. It's noon, so it should be the brightest point of the day. And Passover is at the new moon, right? Again, I'm not an astronomer, just like I'm not a farmer, but I think that's how it works, right? You can't have a solar eclipse when there's a new moon, right? Mm -hmm. So something unusual is taking place. And Matthew especially wants us to know that it happened at noon. He doesn't use the word noon, right? But the middle of the day, and that it lasts for what we would call three hours. So I think everyone agrees that in some way God is showing his displeasure. You know, darkness in the Bible is not a good thing, right? But then the other question we have to answer is, what specifically is God upset about? Is he upset about the treatment of his son? 
is he is he is this kind of like he's forsaking his son separating himself from his son what specific thing is happening well there's a couple different old testament passages that talk about darkness a lot of people point to amos 8 9 and i'm not sure about this one you know i, I show you there in that parentheses there's a bunch of different old testament passages that say that in the end times that there will be darkness it's just kind of a a general way of describing God's judgment. But I think there is one possible text that might be in the back of Matthew's mind as he's writing, especially because he makes a big point of saying this happens in the middle of the day at noon. If you remember way back, we've already looked at this passage. Remember how we talked about that the way Jesus at his second coming is going to rescue the people of Israel and restore them, we could call it a second exodus or a new exodus. The reason we call that is because the benefits that they received from the first exodus get taken away. They get rolled back. They actually end up in a situation that's worse than Egypt. They have to be rescued from someone greater than Pharaoh. And so they'll need someone greater than Moses to actually accomplish that redemption. So this is one of those passages that talks about how the, the exodus gets rolled back. This is, remember, the one that wasn't too pleasant to read. Because it says, the Lord will afflict you with the boils of Egypt, tumors, a festering rash, scabies from which you cannot be cured. The Lord will afflict you with madness, blindness, and mental confusion, so that at noon you will grope as a blind person gropes in the dark. You will not be successful in anything you do. You will only be oppressed and robbed continually, and no one will help you. So I think this is likely, I can't say for sure, but it's different passages like this, um, at least, that are behind the displeasure that God shows by making the whole land of Israel dark. Right? That what they have done is a tragic uh, mistake, an awful instance of rebellion by crucifying his son, the greatest of the prophets, the one that was there to deliver them. And this is just one in a whole series of events that's actually going to make them go into something darker before they actually receive light. So that's this first great sign, and it must have been dramatic. You know, it lasts for three hours in the, in the middle of the day. The second one, if you turn the page to page 110, is that the veil of the temple is torn or it's ripped from top to bottom. Verse 51. So Herod's temple had a curtain hanging in front of the main doors leading into the sanctuary. It also had a curtain leading into the most holy place. So this picture is a little bit fuzzy, but I think it's, it's kind of helpful. I borrowed this from somebody else, but you can kind of see like a cutaway of into the, the temple. First, just kind of aside, just realize the size of it. So look at the little people there that are for scale. You realize how massive this building was, this giant altar in front of it. It's got the stair steps, and then it would have had some kind of door that you would have gone into the main sanctuary where only the, the priest could enter, and there would have been a giant curtain in front of it. And then you would have gone into the holy place, right, the, the original floor plan of the tabernacle, and there would have probably been a high ceiling, I guess we think, but then in front of you would have been something shaped as a cube, another room that only the high priest could enter once a year that originally would have had the Ark of the Covenant, but in Jesus' day is empty. It just had a little tiny raised platform of a few inches where they remembered where the Ark had originally been. Because remember, this is no longer the place where God's special presence dwells with his people. But that also would have had a curtain in front of it. As you can kind of see in the picture, and I think this is important to the story, those curtains were blue. If you go back to Exodus and read the descriptions, and also by Jesus' day, these curtains not only blue, not only probably had the cherubim weaved into them, but they also put different signs and symbols to represent the heavens, the stars, and that type of thing. Some people refer to them as zodiac symbols, and that doesn't mean the same thing that zodiac means today, but it's just symbols of the stars, okay? The curtains represented the sky. They represented the firmament. Remember that old word in Genesis 1? There's a firmament between us and God between the sky and, and earth, and I think that's what these curtains represent. So what does it mean then when God rips the curtain? Everyone agrees that if the curtains get ripped 
from top to bottom. That's probably supposed to signify that it's God doing it. And it's a super thick, giant curtain, all right? So not the type of thing that would have just ripped on its own, even if there was an earthquake that took place. Well, I think, one, some people have argued that it's a sign that Jesus' death had provided new access to God. So you could go to Hebrews chapter 10, and it does say that Jesus' death has provided us access into God's presence. But if you go back and look at that passage, it never actually refers to the ripping of the veil. So if that's what it means, it's kind of strange that the writer of Hebrews never actually refers to that. But that is a pretty common view. Number two, some people think it's a sign of the coming destruction of the temple. So this means it's kind of like when Jesus went into the temple and started casting out the money changers. It's just a way of God saying, this isn't my home. This isn't my place. I don't actually live here, and I'm going to destroy it. So that, that's what some people have argued. Others say it removes the barrier between Jews and Gentiles. And then there's other writers, you can see their names there, that have kind of combined views one and two. But again, I think there's actually another possibility. Since Matthew doesn't actually tell us, I think he expects that we can figure this out from what the curtains represented. And again, I think the curtains represented the sky. It was the barrier between us and God. And that the hope for the end times is that God will actually come down to us that he will actually rip the curtains open, he'll rip the skies open, and he'll be able to come down and to rescue his people. So I think, it, I think Gertner here, in his various articles, in his dissertation, I think he's probably on to something. I'll read there from the middle of the paragraph, that the splitting of the veil represents an opening in heaven so that a message can be received from God. So what's the message then? Well, the message then would be the rest of the signs. We have the earthquake that's going to happen. We have the splitting of stones. We have the raising of the saints, which together indicate that Jesus' death has inaugurated the eschatological age, the end time in which the exiles will return. And then it leads to the centurion's confession that Jesus is, is God. All right? So just one of the Old Testament passages that could be behind this. Remember Isaiah, he longs for the world to be made right. He's the one that includes a vision towards the end of his prophecy about a new heavens and a new earth, even though the people of his day are wicked, and he knows that judgment is coming. And when you get to chapter 64 of his prophecy, he, he cries out to God. And he says, Oh, that you would rend, or we could say split or tear the heavens, and come down. So you see what he's saying there? It's like there's like a dome between him and God, right? He wants God to come down from where he is. You know, this is all metaphorical, but it's still real. Like metaphors can still be real. He wants God to come down and rescue the people, to make things right. Do you ever have that longing? Sometimes when you're watching the news or you're seeing issues going on or you're dealing with suffering in your own family, you just want justice. You just want healing. You just want God to reveal himself. And I think what Matthew is saying is that he has. He has. Because this has happened twice now. Where's the other place where the heavens ripped open in Matthew's gospel? At Jesus' baptism, right? Mark makes this very obvious because Mark actually uses the word for ripping or tearing. Matthew just says the heavens opened. But I think they're both talking about the same event, and I think they're both thinking of this passage. So at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel and at the end of Matthew's Gospel, both times you have a tearing of the heavens. Once it's the real heaven, right? Here it's the symbolic ripping of the heaven. But both of them say the same thing, that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. He has come down to rescue us. And because He was here and because He saved us from our sins by dying for us on the cross, it guarantees that someday he can return and he can finish his job, right? He still has lots to do on his to-do list, so to speak. His mission as God's servant is not finished. There's still more for him to do on his agenda. But, and I think this is the cool part about these other details, is that he gave us little previews of the end, all right? So that, I think that's what's going on. So remember when I read that little section that kind of 
encapsulated the view of the, the veil ripping, one of the features there is that this is kind of kicked off the last days. So the New Testament writers say that we're already in the last days. If this was a soccer match, we'd be in that extra or that bonus time where you're not really sure when it's going to run out. At any moment, it's going to be done. Jesus will return, and there will be a making of things right and a resurrection. And you notice that when he dies there, first of all, you have an earthquake at the end of verse 51 that splits the rock. I think that's just a classic way of talking about God's presence, his arrival, what we sometimes call a theophany. You notice in Isaiah's passage, he has very similar language about the mountains shaking. Okay, So it's just a, a normal way to refer to God's presence. He also uniquely refers to people who are resurrected. Have you ever wondered about this one? One of those strange little details that Matthew puts into his story and I want to meet him someday and ask him for more of the details. Like, what exactly happened there? I think the big question is, what happens to these people? Right? Do they get taken to heaven? Do they, do they die again? You kind of assume, I think, that they are probably taken to heaven, but you don't actually know. Uh, they apparently are people that are known. Right? So these are saints. You remember back in chapter 23, one of the things that Jesus accused the Pharisees of and their hypocrisy is that they decorate the tombs of the prophets. So they knew where specific famous prophets from the Old Testament had been buried. And they still would go and take care of their tombs even though they themselves were, were rotten to the core. Can you imagine the dramatic effect if some of those well-known Old Testament saints had showed up and walked into Jerusalem? There's just a lot of questions. We don't know all the details. Uh, some people, you know, they debate back and forth, you know, when do they go into Jerusalem? Do they go into Jerusalem when Jesus dies, or do they go into Jerusalem when Jesus is resurrected? And if it's the resurrection, then where are they in between? So it looks like, I think, they come out of their tombs when the earthquake happens and when Jesus dies. They hang out somewhere, right? And then eventually they go into Jerusalem after, uh, after the Jesus' resurrection. So I explain that in footnote 64. But why, why that? You know, why have this, this resurrection? And I think it's just like many things that we've seen in Matthew's Gospel, even Jesus' miracles themselves, right? They're the sneak preview. They're at the risk of trivializing them. They're the trailer that gets us excited for the real thing. They're the first fruits, if we can use a, a Bible analogy. They're the down payment that someday Jesus Christ actually will return from heaven. And the mountains really will shake at his presence. He won't just be an unassuming guy who someone like Pilate can look at and mock, right? He will actually be someone like John sees him on the island of Patmos and falls at his face, even though at the Last Supper he felt very comfortable leaning up against his side, right? He will be very different in his appearance, in his mission, and he actually will judge this world and make all things right but for us, he'll come as a Savior, right? For us, he'll come to resurrect us from the dead. And he's already shown that he has that power because there was these little group of people who he resurrected ahead of time right there at his, at his death. All right? And so I think it does preview uh, the resurrection that a passage like Ezekiel 37 predicted would someday come, come to pass for the people of Israel. All right? I think that's a good place to stop for tonight. So we'll, we'll pick up there at verse 57. Chapter 28 is relatively short. We'll try to wrap up um, all of Matthew and take final questions. But we got time for questions now. Uh, the three hours that it was dark, is that the time you think that, that uh, the, the, the sins of the world were placed on Jesus? Yeah, that's a hard question. Yeah. Well, that is one of the explanations. So, one of the explanations that people have had is that when Jesus' sins were placed on, or when our sins were placed on Jesus, the Father somehow had to turn away from him, right? Separate from him somehow. And then that separation then is symbolized by the darkness. And, you know, that. 
That sounds very possible. I don't see any reason why it couldn't be that. I'm just not sure if that's what it is. Um, it seems like the reference to all of the land means that to me, like God's anger isn't just centered on the cross and what's happening there. It's centered on the whole group of people. And so to me, I kind of think of it back to the way, remember Jesus told the parable about the, the demon-possessed man who has the spirits cast out of him, right? And uh, his body then is like a house that's been swept clean and made nice. And then after the demons have been gone for a while, they come back and find him and they re-inhabited him and he's worse off than before he'd even been cast out. Remember that one? And I think the whole point of Jesus' story there is that the people of Israel, while he was there, experienced a, a reformation. Um, and they have been experiencing benefits all the way since they returned from Babylon. You know, they got a temple. Um, they, some of them were back in the land at different times. They've had a measure of independence. But this was all very temporary, and it wasn't permanent, and it wasn't um, thorough, right? Lots of people not back, lots of people not really following the Lord. And so I think lots of things that happen in Jesus' ministry, including the, the darkness, are ways of God saying, you know, all of these things that you've had that you considered as benefits, I'm now going to take them away from you. And you're actually going to go into a darker period than you had before, and you're going to have to go, what we now know is at least 2,000 years of, of exile, of rejection, until finally, someday, Jesus will suddenly come back and he'll, he'll rescue them. So I connect it more with his displeasure and judgment of the nation as opposed to just displeasure or, or reaction towards sin being on Jesus, if that makes sense. But it's not a... It's not, a slam dunk, it's not a slam dunk argument. It's not something I would die for. It's not something I'm sure about. Yeah. Any other questions? Yes? Wasn't, wasn't the, re the actual resurrection, wasn't that the point of completion of God's wrath? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I've never thought of that. So God's wrath abides on Jesus until the resurrection. Yeah, again, I mean, that sounds possible, but I can't think of anywhere in the Bible that it actually describes it that way. Usually when the resurrection is described, it's Jesus' vindication. So not that he, he bore the sin all the way up to the resurrection, but that when he died and was buried, everyone, for the most part, would have thought of him as he just got what he deserved. You know, when we come back next week, we're going to look at chapter, into chapter 27. The chief rulers are going to tell Pilate, hey, you need to go out and send troops to guard his tomb because that deceiver has been telling people that he's going to be resurrected. So even after he's dead, people are still looking at him as he deserved this. You know, he was a, he was a covenant breaker. But the resurrection is, Jesus, is God's vindication. You know, he isn't what you thought he was. He truly is the Son of God. He's now going to ascend to my right hand where he's going to rule, just like Psalm 110 said. And so usually in the New Testament, when they refer to the resurrection, it's tied to the ascension, and it's associated with Jesus' victory or his vindication. Um, well, it's true that yeah. God doesn't need three days to make up his mind about his judgment. Yeah, so that, I mean, that's a question we'll have to tackle a little bit is why why Sunday, right? Why, why not just the next day? It seems like there's something special about the first day of the week, right? That Jesus now is going to be the first to resurrect and be part of the new age, right? So they're, the first day of the week is kind of symbolic of the new age. Because remember, the, this age, this world that we live in, God made it in six days and then he rested on the seventh. Well, if he's going to recreate the world like a, with a new week of creation, so to speak. His crowning act then would be the resurrection of Jesus. He's the first to, per, he's the first to belong to that new age. And so I think there is something to him being resurrected on the first day. Didn't Jesus say it's finished and he died? Yeah, I was trying to remember, what's it actually say in Matthew's 
gospel. If somebody knows for sure, they can point it out to me, but I don't. So he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In verse 46, and they think he's calling for Elijah. And then it just says in verse 50 that he cried out again in a loud voice. So it actually doesn't give his words. But in the other gospels, we do know that's something he said. So I think that is his his payment of sin is finished. So that could be evidence then that his, the sin doesn't remain on him till the resurrection. Is that where you're going with that? And then after that, he went into hell, supposedly, whatever they call it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's a whole nother, that one I would literally say we're out of time and I'd run because it's just a hard question, right? <laughs> yeah, it's just too hard and too hard. So you can ask... You can ask Pastor Ken that one. No, we, we actually at our seminary, I had two of my colleagues, a, a theology professor, Dr. Snowberger, who you know, and uh, Dr. Dunham, who's our Old Testament professor, they actually did a debate back and forth over you know, what happens to Old Testament saints when they die. Is there a compartment they go to? And of course, that's all tied into, does Jesus go to that same compartment? And it's, yeah, it's a tough question. And I'm I'm just not sure because the Bible just doesn't say very much about it. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 online, so you can go watch that. They've settled that, and that's my way of getting out of that, right? And just avoiding that like the plague. All right, thank you all. Uh, Lord willing, I'll see you next week.